invite you that you would open your Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 49. And we may come to a close of this book after uh, almost a year, a little over a year in Genesis. We may come to a, a close in Genesis. If we don't tonight, there's always next week unless the Lord comes for his church. Then he can teach us all about Genesis up when we're there in heaven. But we're at Genesis chapter 49, and this is where Jacob, Israel, is now prophesying over his sons. This is the blessing of Jacob over his sons, the prophecies of Jacob over the 12 sons or the tribes as we know them. This is the future of Israel in one chapter. And what is he doing? He's pronouncing a blessing, an encouragement, a warning to his children. He is now coming to the end of his life, and these are his last words. Now, what's interesting to know here, and it's very commendable when it comes to Jacob's life, the way he ends, because he's ending well. And not only is he prophesying, not, not only is he pronouncing blessing and warning and, and now uh, a future for the 12 tribes, which are his sons, but what he's doing is that he's passing the baton to the next generation. Do you see how important this is for the, the previous generation to pass the baton to the next generation? His life did not end as a bitter, old, angry man. <laughs> Have you ever met someone that as the older they get, the, the more upset or grumpy they become, right? Well, that's not how his life ended. He wasn't just frustrated. He wasn't just critical. He, he, he wasn't judgmental. There was joy. There was hope. There was future at the end of his life. And what he was doing here is that he, he ended now the this, this season of walking with the Lord here on earth as the Lord was calling him home now with, with no regrets. His life ended without regrets. Just think about that. That's the kind of life you want to live, that, that, that when it comes to an end here on earth, it ends with no regrets. In fact, he, his life ends full of confidence, full of hope, blessing the next generation. He says, before, before I, I go home to be with the Lord... Before he calls me to be gathered to my people, I have to bless the next generation. Why? Because we realize as well as we read the entire counsel of God that death is not an accident. All of us here, 100% of us, unless the Lord returns, we will die. But we know if we put our faith in Jesus, we will live after we die here on earth. For the Christian, death is not an accident. Death is an appointment. It is not, not something that we look at with fear. Do you see that? When you study the Bible, when you say you have trust and faith in Jesus Christ, we don't look at, at death with fear. We look at it with hope because we know that it's filled now with this eternal life with the Father face to face. In Hebrews 9, verse 27, what the apostle says there, he says, and it is appointed for men to die once, and then comes the judgment. What does this mean? We have an appointment, each of us, with God. And here what Jacob is doing is that he's exchanging now this pilgrim tent that he calls it for this eternal heavenly home that he's going to have when he meets with the Lord. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, I want you to note this verse tonight. Hebrews 11, 13, this is the perspective of looking at the museum of champions of faith. Men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these all, Hebrews eleven thirteen, 13, died in faith. They didn't die in fear. How did they die? In faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, confessed them, that they were strangers and pilgrims here on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Verse 14. And truly, if they have called to mind that country far or from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We know that God's prepared a city for us, a heavenly country. We have a heavenly citizenship. And that's why Isaac here, that's why Jacob here is looking at the end of his life full of hope and faith. In fact, we ended there in verse 22 where he's giving a blessing to all of his sons. But he comes here now to his son, Joseph, his, his favorite son. And he gives him here a, a blessing describing the, the character of Joseph. And we went over it last week as we concluded the message there looking at the life of Joseph. But these are the words of a, of a dying man. Now let's look at Joseph's life again and, and point out those, those five characteristics or those five qualities in the life of Joseph. Genesis 49, 22, Joseph is a fruitful bowel. A fruitful bowel by a well, his branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him, but his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong. By the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you and by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above and blessings of deep that lies beneath the blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have exalted the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound, the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you teach us, Lord, as here Jacob is pronouncing a blessing over each and every one of his sons. And when we come to the life of Joseph, that would give us an example of who you are through the Old Testament. Lord, I pray that we would learn from these qualities, that even from the words of a dying man would resonate what we as Christians should live by today. Lord, speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Together we said, amen. Notice there in verse 22 how he describes Joseph's life. What does he say there? Joseph is a fruitful bough. He was number one fruitful, if you remember that. And why was he fruitful? Because he was fruitful in character. His character went deep and his character went wide. 
It's godly character that it's describing. It's fellowship with God that he describes him as. He was a fruitful bough. What is a bough? It's a branch, or it's a vine, or it's a tree. And what Joseph did is he went deep into the soil of God's love, and from there he gave fruits. Joseph is an example to us that we should live a life that is fruitful. Number one, he lived a fruitful life. But he also was by a well or by a spring. He was faithfully abiding. How can we become fruitful? By faithfully abiding to the life source. We will never be fruitful if we are not abiding to that life source that gives us the fruit of the Spirit. Joseph was by the spring, by the well. He was planted by the source that gives life, reminding us that we also must be rooted. We must also be grounded by that life source that would produce in us a fruitful life in the Spirit. That not only we would be saved or, or sanctified, but fruitful as we're serving others in the body of Christ. He was fruitful. He was faithfully abiding. But notice here, it says his branches now run over the wall. Isn't that an amazing picture? Of his branches now overflowing, going over the wall. He, he's extending with fruits. It is not only direct fruit. It's not only immediate fruit. It is far-reaching do you see the blessing in your life should also be far-reaching? It should not only bless you, but also, also bless others. It would extend beyond the borders of your immediate space and house. So what does it tell us? That he was bountiful while he was affluent. That means that he was a blessing to all those around him. He, he was a fruitful bough that his branches ran over the wall. He was overflowing with fruits. He was a vessel that gave fruit to others. We remember last week as we looked at Joseph that we find an example that it's one thing to be a Christian and to be saved, but it's another thing to be a blessing. That your life would extend, the branches and the fruit of your life would extend far-reaching into the lives of other people and that it would bring joy and a blessing and refreshment to others around you. That's exactly who Joseph is here. God did not save us to live a selfish life. God saved us so that we would bear fruit, that he would receive all glory from the fruits, and that our fruit would remain. That is the purpose of the Christian. And that because we're bearing fruit, we're also bringing joy to other people. So Joseph is an example of that, a fruitful life, a life that's faithfully abiding, a life also that, that is now uh, bountiful while it's affluent. But also here we find that his life is filled with foes. Verse 23. And what does that mean? That while he's fruitfully abiding and bearing fruit that extends far and wide, he also has enemies. And I want you to know that as you're serving the Lord, and as your life is giving fruit, there are going to be those that are going to be shooting now the arrows of attacks into your life. It said that the archers would come in and shoot now their bow and arrow over at Joseph. That he lived a life under attack from the enemy. You too live a life where people will say things as you're serving the Lord. They'll criticize 
They'll get a misunderstanding or misinterpretation of who you are, of your character, of your intentions. And it says, his life was filled with foes. He, he was hated. He, he was rejected by other people. And that's where we left off in verse 23. The archers have bitterly grieved him. You notice those words, bitterly. They have severely attacked him. They have brought bitter words. They, they have shot at him. They have harassed him. They, they have spoken lies about him. Did you remember when he was sold by his brothers? When he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife? When he was forgotten by the baker? We, we see all of these things now through the life of Joseph here, and it reminds us that we too will experience these types of attacks, that our life will also be filled with foes. But there you find in verse 23, a very important word in verse 24 that, that encourages us. And it's that word, but, in verse 24. But his bow remained in strength. Now, maybe you're becoming that person that is a target for the enemy. But notice how you can remain strong. But he remained strong. What does this remind us also of Joseph? He was steadfast while he was attacked. Are you steadfast while you are attacked? Or are you easily shaken? When people say things about you, are you easily discouraged or, or swayed or unstable? But here it says that Joseph, even while he was hated by others, he remained stable. He was steadfast. He, he was strong. And he was not strong because of himself. Notice what it says in verse 24. He was strong because the arms now, of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. It was God who made his hands strong. It was the hands of God supporting the hands of Joseph. It is the hands of God right now supporting your hands while you're serving the Lord under attack. It is the hands of mighty God who is all-powerful, who is able like a father coming now surrounding the sun behind him to strengthen the bow and the arrow while in warfare, Joseph here was being supported and strengthened by God. Now, I want you to look at something that's important there in the following two verses because he now begins to bless Joseph with these five names of God. And we can't just read these verses without taking note of these five names of God. These five names will support you. These five names will strengthen you. These five names of God, as you learn more about who he is, you'll begin to trust him more and, and have peace and hope even while you're going through different seasons of life. But it's important that you know who God is so that you can trust him. The problem with oftentimes why we don't trust God is because we don't know who he is. And he blesses Joseph with five names of God. The first name we read there in verse 23 and in 24 already. It says, by the mighty God of Jacob. Who is God? Who was God for Joseph? He was all powerful. He was the mighty God. He was the God who is able. 
This is who strengthens us, our mighty God. He is all-powerful. He is able. He, he strengthens us. Do you see here that it would describe where we receive our power from, from the mighty God? Remind yourself today as you're going through trials, God is the mighty God. He is able. He is powerful. He is strengthening me. His hands are supporting my hands. His hands are strengthening my hands. As I grow weak, he becomes strong in me. But not only is he the mighty God, notice what he also is for you and for me. What was he for Joseph? From there, it's the shepherd. He's a mighty God, but he's also a shepherd. Aren't you grateful that God not only is mighty on your behalf, he's also a shepherd on your behalf? He's powerful, but he's also a provider. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd now here provides for the sheep. This is how God has been for you, Joseph. He's been shepherding you throughout every trial and attack in your life. Aren't you grateful that maybe when you come into attack, you know, well, I still have a shepherd and it is the great shepherd of that sheep. His name is Jesus. He is powerful. He, he is a provider. But notice the third title that he uses to describe who God was for him. He describes him as a protector. God is powerful. God is a provider. God is a protector. And he says, the stone of Israel. This is the rock of Israel. This is my protector. He gives me stability. He gives me security. I, I can trust him. There is trustworthiness in who God is for me. Why is it important that we remember that he is our rock? Because things in our life change so quickly. From one moment to the other, from one week to the other, things change quickly. And you know what we like to do? We, we want stability. We want to feel safe. We want security. We want protection. Well, you know what we can do? We can now be anchored to that rock, which is Christ Jesus, who is the Lord. He is all-powerful. He is a provider. He is a protector. You may say, well, I don't know what the future holds, but you do know who holds the future. And we stand on that solid rock. There's no safer place to stand as a believer than to know that God is the rock of Israel. We stand on him. We don't stand on sinking sand. We stand on a solid rock like that song we sing. But notice here, it describes also God as his father. And in verse 25, he goes on, by the God of your father who will help you. Now, I want you to circle who will help you. He, he's your mighty God. He's your shepherd. He, he's your rock. He will strengthen you and give you stability. He is full of now trustworthiness. But he's also the God of your fathers who will help you. Notice what he is. He's a promise keeper. He's reminding him. This is the same God that was the God to your fathers. The same God that helped them will help you. It's important that we look at this because this is where all the strength is coming from. This is the God of Abraham. This is the God of, of Isaac. This is the God of Jacob. He's a, he's a promise keeper. And I want you to know that, Joseph. It's the same God who will help you. 
How many of us tonight need help? Amen? We need help, but notice, we know where we can receive help from as well. We can receive help from the God of our fathers, who's a promise keeper. And also there, he names the fifth name that he would describe God for Joseph, and by the Almighty, he calls him Almighty again. This is the sixth time in the book of Genesis that he refers to God by the Hebrew name El Shaddai, the all-powerful one. So he starts with mighty one, and then he ends with the Almighty. From mighty God to the Almighty, the the all-powerful one. He, He wants to reiterate this. He wants this to resonate. Do you see this? I want you to know this, that that God is powerful, that he's a provider, that he's a protector, that he's a promise keeper, but also, again, the one that's all powerful, he will bless you. The two things that you see there in verse 25, Joseph, remember the God of your fathers will help you, the Almighty will bless you. Who's the source of help and blessing in our lives? God himself. Look to him for help and look to him for blessing here. He's the one that's going to bless you. With with what kind of blessing? With the blessing of heaven above? With the blessings of the deep that lies beneath? Notice he says, there are going to be blessings from from heaven above. There's going to be blessings from, from the depths below. There are going to be blessings of the breasts and of the womb. You're going to be fruitful and have generations. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph. You will excel in blessing far above the blessings that your fathers have received. You will surpass the blessings of your ancestors to reach the heights of everlasting hills, he says. And on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Do you see that word there, separate? God had a separate, special blessing for Joseph. I'm going to bless you exceedingly, and I'm going to bless you abundantly. How many of us remember that verse in Ephesians 3.20? He is able to do what? Exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything that we can ask or imagine. This is the same God that is blessing Joseph. Joseph would be distinguished. That blessing would be on the the head of Joseph. He he would be the prince among his brothers. He he would stand out as the one that was blessed far above them. Now notice this. He was the one that suffered the most, but he was also the one with the greatest blessings. (laughs) Whom God chose to bless. Now, what's the secret of this blessed, fruitful life that we look at when we think about Joseph? The secret here of fruitfulness is abiding. Remember that. That's where the blessings flow from, abiding. And the secret of abiding is yielding. Well, what does it mean to abide? It means that very thing that we look at in Joseph's life. The secret to abiding is yielding. What does that mean? To surrender to God. To know that God owns everything in your life that your life is on the altar of sacrifice. 
that you have a yielded body and a yielded soul before him. So with these five names of God, Jacob blessed Joseph, prayed for him, because now he had a greater understanding of who God was himself. See, if you know who God is, you can direct others to God yourself. And that's what Jacob was doing for Joseph. It was God who blessed him, and it was God who gave him strength. Now let's look here in verse 27, because he moves from Joseph to Benjamin. And he says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. Think about it. He goes from such a beautiful place of blessing to now he says, well, Benjamin, he's going to be like a wolf. But that's what his reputation would look like. It would be a reputation of fierceness. Benjamin's tribe would be a reputation of leadership. Two important souls in the Bible would come from the tribe of Benjamin. It would be King Saul, the first king that the nation of Israel ever had. It would also be Saul of Tarsus would come from the tribe of Benjamin as well. And this is why he says, you're going to have an aggressive leadership come from your tribe. You're going to devour your enemies. And he would describe it this way. In the morning, he shall devour the prey, and at night, he shall divide the spoil. At the youth of your life, you're going to be one that attacks the enemies. At the night or at the evening of your life, you're going to divide the spoil. The tribe of Benjamin, if you look at it in Scripture, were a very aggressive and warlike people. They were ready to kill. They were ready to fight. They were ready to conquer at any time. These were not and would not be a soft people. These would be an aggressive, fierce, warlike, filled with leadership type of people. In First Chronicles 840, it describes the tribe of Benjamin. It says, the sons of Ulam were mighty men of valor, archers. Think about that. These were fighting people. Then many sons and grandsons, 150 in all, these were all sons of Benjamin. It's important that amongst the tribes, there was a tribe like Benjamin that were ready to fight and conquer and come against the enemy. Well, that was Benjamin. And now all the sons have received their blessing. And notice what happens here in verse 28, because they're all gathered together. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one of them according to their own blessing. Do you notice there three times he uses the word blessed? This is how he blessed them. He blessed them, each one according to their own blessing. What does this mean? That they all did not receive the same blessing. He blessed them all uniquely with their appropriate message for each one of them. Their future all looked distinct from one another. It was all according to God's will for that tribe or for their lives. Then he charged them and said, verse 29, that word charge means he commanded them. This is now Jacob giving his final instructions. He says, I'm going to tell you how I want this to happen so that you don't mess it up after I die. <laughs> I need to be specific. I'm going to give you preparations. I think it's important. Oftentimes we don't like thinking about death, but it's important that we make preparations that we live a life decent and in order. He's giving them 
specific plans and preparation for when that time happens. But do you know, this is not a sorrowful conversation. This is not a, a, a sad dialogue. Do you notice what he says there in verse 29? He commanded, charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. That's amazing there. Circle that in your Bible. He didn't say, I'm going to die. He didn't say, I, I, I'm going to go to the abyss, or, or I'm going to cease to exist. You know what he said? I, I'm going to be gathered to my people. My soul is going to be with the Lord. This here speaks of hope, of life after death. Do you see their life after death in Genesis 49? I'm going to be gathered to my people. I'm going from here to there. There's no middle holding place. Some people oftentimes ask, what happens before Christ died, were people in purgatory? <laughs> he says, no, I'm going from here to my people. I'm going to a place. I'm going to my people. You know who my people is? It's the people of the Lord. That, that is the people that he's describing. There is no distinctions in heaven. There is no separations. There's no denominations in heaven. It's all one people. It's the people of the Lord who have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. When we get to heaven, he, the Lord's not going to say, well, you know what? Let me get all my Calvary Chapel people in this side. And then the, the Methodists, can you guys go on that side? Presbyterian, Anglicans on this other side. No, there is not going to be distinctions between people that way. It's going to be one people. It's going to be the people that have been washed and bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is hope for us after life here on earth. I'm going to be gathered to my people. That, that's why when we experience the death of someone we love, yes, we can mourn. Yes, we sorrow because we love them. But our grief is filled with hope knowing that their body is left here. It's just a shell, it's just a tent. They're no longer there. Their soul is with the Lord. But here he's making preparations for that. And notice what he says in verse 30. He's speaking to them and he says, I'm going to be gathered to my people. Bury me, verse 29, with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite. I, this is where I want to be buried. I want my soul to be gathered to my people, but I want my body to be gathered with the bodies of my people as well. This is a statement of solidarity. This is a statement of identification here. My soul is with my people. My body is also with my people. You see, he's identifying himself to be a man of the people of God here in the cave that is in the field of Mechphla which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which is Abraham bought with the field of Ephron, the Hittite, as a possession for burial places. He says, I want to be there. He understands his spiritual heritage. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. He recognizes who's there. And it, it, it speaks to us of a man who is holding on to that heritage that he's received from the Lord as a separated people. 
The field, verse 32, and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, notice what he says, he, he, he mustered up all the strength and breath he had to, to give them instructions, specific instructions, and he drew his feet into his bed. He, he was almost leaning out of the bed when he was speaking to them. And then he breathed his last. And what does it tell us there in verse 33? And he was gathered to his people. Words of eternal hope there. And he was gathered to his people. Today, you may be mourning or missing someone that you love. These are the words of eternal life here. There is so much peace when someone dies who had faith in Jesus Christ. Because here it describes the life of Jacob, Israel, who was a pilgrim until the very end. Notice what he says, I'm going to be gathered to my people. He, he was at home with God now. In Psalms 116, 115, you know what David said? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. How beautiful it is when the Lord receives his saints unto eternity. It's precious in the sight of the Lord. For us on this side of heaven, our attitude should be like the attitude of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5a. And we're confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That's the attitude. If I'm, I'm pleased, if I'm absent from this body, that means I'm present with the Lord. That is the attitude. That is the perspective. That is the mindset that we have. I'm going to be present with the Lord. So what do we do as we live this life, knowing that we have words of eternal life like Jacob did? We strive to finish well. How are we to finish well? We, we are to discipline our bodies discipline our lives to run this race well so that we finish the race well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, I want you to write this verse down because it speaks of that running well, finishing well. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives a prize? We're running this race of life. Run in such a way that you may obtain it and everyone who competes for a prize is temperate in all things. Now they do not obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Notice, when they run in a race here on earth and they win a race, they just receive a perishable crown, something that gets old, something that decays. But we run for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus not with uncertainty. I'm not just living an aimless life or a, a purposeless life. Thus, I find not as someone who beats the air. I'm not just shadow boxing in this life. I understand that I'm in a fight. I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. What kind of life should we live? A disciplined life. That's the kind of life that Paul lived to the very end, the kind of life that we want to live that is full of hope when considering eternal life. These are the words of a, of a dying man. You know also what are the most important words of a dying man that we find in Scripture? They were the words of a man that died on the cross when he said, it is finished. Jesus Christ, when he paid the price for your sin, the penalty and judgment for our sins, when he atoned for our, the penalty and the judgment 
that we had committed past, present, and future, and now we can receive eternal life. Very important words that we must consider. And there in chapter 50, the first 15 verses, let's look at them and overview them quickly. Because here you find also the sovereign purposes of God. In fact, from chapter 50, verses 1 through 26, it's all about God's sovereign purposes. You can write this next to chapter 50, the the sovereign purposes of God. Now they are to bury a beloved father. Now they're going to bury him. And this is then Joseph fell on his father's face after his father had been gathered to his people. And notice what he does. And he wept over him and he kissed him. This is a time to weep now. He, he's burying his beloved father, his father who he loved. But Joseph begins to mourn. Do you see the picture there in verse 1? He falls on his face. He, he weeps all over him. He, he kisses him. He, he's expressing the, this strong, genuine love for his father. I think it's so important that we express love to one another. Sometimes people, they want to hug you. You say, you know, get away from me. Don't touch me, right? It's important that that sons, that daughters, that parents, that Christians would express love to one another. Notice what what Joseph is doing. He's he's expressing this genuine love. And, and, And what also happens is that he's weeping over him. Now, when someone dies who we love, God expects us also to weep. That's why he gave us the ability to shed tears. Tears are a part of the healing process that God has given us in our body. When we shed tears, you know what it does to us? Emotionally, it helps us heal. That's why when we say, well, you know what? I'm not going to cry. I'm a tough guy. You never really heal from the pain inside. In Psalms 30 verse 5, David says, weeping may endure for a night, What happens? Joy comes in the morning. You know what Joseph is? He's mourning. He's weeping. And at the same time, this is the beginning of healing. And I would say there in verse 2, and Joseph commanded. Notice this is an order from the governor here, Joseph in Egypt. He commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians here embalmed Israel. He he said, I want you to take care of my father. Forty days were required for him, for such were the days required for those who were embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. For the Jewish people, the Hebrews, they would, if someone died, they would bury him that very same day. But since Joseph was an Egyptian having lived there according to the customs and culture of the Egyptian land and a leader within them, he followed the traditions of what they did when it came to this process. And it would say there that it took 40 days that was required by the Egyptians to embalm and then 70 days was the extent that they would then mourn. Now notice who mourned for him in verse 3. The Egyptians mourned from him for 70 days. Do you see here the influence of Joseph? They didn't even know Israel. They had no idea who Jacob was. But you know why they mourned for him? Because they knew who Joseph was. And because they honored 
Joseph, so they respected his father. Do you see that? It's very important that we look at that. There was a culture of honor that's displayed here, not only through the Egyptians, but also Joseph or his father, a culture of honor, a culture of respect. I think that's something that we need to learn today. There is hardly any honor in the culture we live in today. There is hardly any respect. And notice how Joseph honors his father there in verse four. Now, when the days of mourning were past, he was just emotional. There was also follow through. There are some people that know how to cry well, but that's all they know how to do, just cry. <laughs> in life, there was not only emotions, there's also obedience. There's also follow through. There isn't just a, a, a move of emotions when you say something and you really don't mean it and you're in the moment and you're becoming very emotional and you say, yes, I'll do it, but you don't follow through with what you said you would do. You know what's awesome here about Joseph is that he follows through and he keeps his word. There is a time to mourn, there is a time to weep, but there's also a time to build and a time to plant. There is a season for everything under the sun, the Bible says. And it would say, now when the days of mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, notice the word, notice the attitude, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh saying, he goes to the household of Pharaoh. And he says, please speak to Pharaoh for me. He could have gone to Pharaoh himself. He was the second in command. But he comes with, in all humility to the household of Pharaoh, and he says, if I have found any favor, would you speak to Pharaoh on my behalf? And, and notice the word he uses, please. He's a man of respect because he's respectful. He's a respected man because he's respectable. And in verse five, my father made me swear, saying, behold, I'm a dying in my grave, which I dug, for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. This is what my father told me. In fact, he, he made me swear this in verse five, he says. Would you bury me in Canaan? Why Canaan? What's so special about Canaan? That's God's place of promise. I wanna be buried in the God's place of promise. So he says this, now therefore, please, again a second time, please let me go up and bury my father and I will come back. This is a man of authority I want you to understand here. But just because he's a man of authority doesn't mean he doesn't need to be accountable. Just, just because you're gifted, just because you have a title, just because you have position doesn't mean you do what you want. He's still accountable. Notice how he behaves here. He still has an attitude of humility. He's still responsible with the affairs of his family. He's attending to the needs of his father still. He's still becoming submissive under Pharaoh's leadership. All while keeping his promise to his father. Do you see this? What does he do? He asks for permission. We have to learn, be better at doing that, doing things decently and in order. Asking before we do things. Doing things the right way. He's not entitled, he's not demanding, he's not saying, Pharaoh, listen, this is what I'm gonna do, I'll be back, see you later. 
He's saying, please let me go. And if you let me go, I'll come back. But this is the right attitude to request for permission. He's doing things the right way. And Pharaoh said, go up, bury your father as he made you swear. Notice the favor that comes from Pharaoh. He says, go. Now, there was no questions in Joseph's mind as to what he was to do because Jacob already spoke to him in front of his brothers, specific instructions as to how he wanted this to take place in advance. He told him already, this is what I want you to do, and I want you to be in charge of it. How does Joseph behave? In wisdom, in maturity, in humility. How are you to behave with every affair in life? In wisdom, in maturity, in humility. Remember those three words, would you, the next time you have to make a move? Wisdom, maturity, and humility. Not entitlement, wisdom, maturity, and humility. Keep yourself accountable. Don't be presumptuous that you know what you should do. Ask for permission. Stay accountable. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up, notice, all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. It would say all again, expressing now the greatness of the people that would go out from Egypt to go mourn and bury. This is a great funeral that's about to happen, as well as all, verse 8, the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. Notice everyone but the kids and the flocks went. All went. And in verse 9, and there, was the, and there they went up to him, both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Important for us to note that, a very great gathering. Why is it important for us to note that? Because the Holy Spirit noted it for us already. Again, you see here that because they honored Joseph, they treated his father with respect. Very great number of people went with Joseph to respect his father because they honored the son. A culture of honor. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, verse 10, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father, and when the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites saw the mourning of, at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name is called Abel Mizram, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. The Canaanites of the land saw how deep the mourning was, and they named that area territory a place of great mourning for the Egyptians. They identified it as the place where the Egyptians mourned. And in verse 12, so his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. Notice his sons honored him even after his death. After his death, what were his sons, how were they behaving? They were still submissive to their father. Do you see that in verse 12? Just as he had commanded. They could have said, you know what, well, our old man died. Let's move on. No, you know what they did? They treated him with respect. They paid attention to everything he had to say. And then they treated him with respect. They valued their father 
his words. And they valued even their father's burial. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, verse 13, and buried him in the cave of the field of Mechpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron, the Hittite, as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. Now notice this. After, what did he do? Verse 14. This is important that you look at. After he buried, he what? He returned to Egypt. He also kept his word there. He said, let me go and then I'm coming back. Joseph hadn't been back to the land of Canaan in over 20 years. Think about that. He's finally back there. This is the place of his home. But he doesn't stay there because he knows that God has assigned him to do a job in Egypt. So he goes back to Egypt. That's where he belonged. That's that's where his family was. Yes, he was grieving, but he was putting his grief all into perspective and get back to the business of living now as well. He didn't just say, I'm just going to stay here and mourn and grieve. And, and, and be in this grief forever. No, notice the best way to honor the dead is to take care of the living. Joseph returns to Egypt to take care of the living. Sometimes we can prolong our mourning, and yes, it gives us deeper sympathy, but, but it will not produce in us maturity. And will it, it will not make us useful to others. This is very important that we look at how Joseph grieved. It's a very important example. So what does he do? He returns to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. Now it's important that we look at this as as significant as it is for Jacob to want to be buried in Canaan. For us that have received Christ, I want you to know something. The, The most important part of a funeral is not where it will be. You know where the most important part of a funeral is where, where you will be? <laughs> because that's just the casket. That's just the shell. Where we will be, our soul, that's what matters more, either heaven or hell. And in verse 15 through on, you see that now he buried his beloved father, But you know what happens next? It's time to bury a hurtful past now. There's so many people that have a problem with the past, they don't know how to bury it. And that's where you see from verses 15 and on how Joseph, he buries the past. How he teaches his brothers, it's time, guys, to bury the past. Why? They start to become fearful. Now Joseph, that our father is dead, now Joseph is going to want to take revenge. They're living with a guilty conscience. They're living with a conscience that is not fully trusting in the forgiveness that Joseph already offered them. Do you know that there's a time to heal? There's a time to forgive? There's a time to reconcile? But when God has offered us that forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ, we need to walk in the confidence that he has forgiven us. We are not to walk in condemnation. You know where condemnation comes from? The devil. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. And in verse 15, notice what it says. We'll just look at this verse. 
When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. They, they realized they realized that they had done evil to him. And he says, now that my father is dead, Joseph possibly hates us. He's gonna wanna take revenge for every evil thing we did to him. He's gonna want to repay everything that we did. They didn't believe Joseph had forgiven them fully. They didn't believe that Joseph had loved them. They were doubting in what Joseph had said and they didn't believe in everything that Joseph had done for them already. You know, one thing they, they were condemned with all of their past sins. They struggled with that guilty conscience. Now, I want you to know something, and I'm gonna give you three verses that you would remember today as we close, that we would not doubt what God has told us in his word. That you would not doubt his love, that you would not doubt his forgiveness, that you would not doubt that he has washed away all of your sins. In 1 John 5, 13, notice what the Apostle John says, these things I've written to you that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. There's so many people that think, well, I don't know if I'm really saved. I, I sinned and I did something wrong and does it mean that God has cast me away, that he doesn't love me, that he has not saved me? No, notice what John says, that you may know you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. It's important that we have that assurance of our salvation. That we don't doubt in the love of Christ, that we don't doubt in the forgiveness of Christ. You would say, well, I messed up, well, I sinned. You know what the Bible tells us also? That nothing can separate us from the love of God. Isn't that amazing? In Romans 8, verse 35, for I'm persuaded, Paul says, no matter what season in life I'm in, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor death nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We should never doubt God's love or forgiveness for our life. We should never want to seek to take revenge on those that hurt us. We must learn to bury the past. God has casted our sins as far as the east is from the west. So we should not be looking back on what God already forgave us from. This is a perfect example of that. Trust in who God is and what he has said and in his love for your life. Can we pray?